Hi guys and welcome back to the Fill Your Boots podcast. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Helen O'Neill. She is the CEO and founder of Hertility Health and a lecturer in reproductive and molecular genetics. It's so great to have you on the podcast so thank you for coming on. My pleasure. <laughs> I had the pleasure of coming to your event a couple of weeks ago in London, your Hertility event, and I was honestly shocked by some of the stats and the things that you you taught us whilst you were there me and my friend Harriet were there and we were both sat there in awe honestly so that's why I was so happy to get you on here and share all of that knowledge with the rest of us um it'd be so great if you can give us a rundown as to who you are um and what did you do prior to fertility okay I guess both of those are one and the same question um Mm. I Prior to starting Hertility, um, I've spent a very long time in research. Um, I am a very staunch scientist um, that is very much interested in all things to do with women's health and reproductive health in particular. So I, many moons ago, did uh, my undergrad was in molecular genetics. And then I went to do a master's in prenatal genetics and fetal medicine. And it was then that I really fell in love with everything to do with human reproduction, how we're all formed. I found that every, you know, despite it being an intense 12 months of fetal medicine, prenatal genetics, embryology, I couldn't stop talking about all of these things. And it, it, I felt like it was of relevance to everyone. We were all in utero at one point. We were all, you know, derived from a sperm and an egg. Um, and so I went on to do a PhD and spent four years researching um, how an ovary forms versus a testis. So doing a lot of a lot of dissection and molecular genetics around that uh, before becoming a lecturer at University College London and really just having the privilege of combining the things that I love, which are research, but also then teaching. So lecturing master's students and medical students um, in reproductive science and women's health and all things to do with fertility, infertility, anatomy, um, new cutting edge technologies and running my own research as well. So looking after PhD students and master's students. And so that's been such an incredible journey uh, for things that I love. But from a personal perspective, I was very frustrated that we you know, we know so much and so little and we can apply so little of what we know to our own personal lives. And when you work in that space, all of the conversations that you have with people end up cutting to the chase. Right. If you work in reproductive genetics, if you work around fertility, infertility, there's like this barrier that goes down and people instantly. It's like someone takes the opportunity to say, wait, you know about this? Can I talk to you? Can I ask you? And that's an amazing privilege. And what was hard for me was simply not being able to direct them to anywhere that they could just get answers uh you know short of going to you know private clinic where they may may not financially be able or psychologically be able that's actually really frustrating for me that I was like I'd love to help you but uh actually society has deprioritized anything to do with this so that's what I created fertility to do was to provide women with answers based on their own biology so they could make informed decisions about anything to do with their fertility and overall reproductive health yeah yeah amazing I mean that was my second question what inspired you to start fertility because it's so so true the amount of people that you speak to and we just have very little knowledge which is really surprising and honestly quite scary at the same time um 
So one thing that I wanted to chat to you about was, in your words, we're becoming more and more disconnected from our bodily signals. Can you explain what you mean by that? And why has that happened to us? I think we've always been quite disconnected with our bodies, but more so in probably in the last 30 years, maybe, Um, though that seems like quite a long time. It's a lifetime for some people. Um, Mm. What I mean by that is the disparity between connectivity whereby we are so connected to social media to our friends we can talk to anyone in an instant we can reach out we can find answers about almost anything in the palm of our hands google it right and yet when it comes to knowing things about our own body and how it works we are one two five ten steps removed and what amazes me is that is that is compounded on a multi-level for multiple reasons right number one we're not educated. And so knowing what you should know is actually not even there. Uh, If you knew it, it's a bit like, you know, ignorance is bliss is the ultimate description for that. Because if you knew what you were missing, you would definitely not uh, allow yourself the opportunity to educate yourself on those things. But from such a young age, we're denied the privilege of understanding about our bodies and how they work because it's not part of our curriculums. Um, but we're, we're further disconnected on another level where it, when we look at, I guess, the role of hormonal contraception in our society and how the emphasis is always on not getting pregnant. And so boys and girls alike from a young age know what contraception is. And yet boys and girls from an even much older age don't know what conception is and don't know how to conceive and how that actually happens what are the mechanics around it and it, it just amazes me that we can track so many elements of our lives our temperature our steps our calories and we can't track the most fundamental aspect of our menstrual cycle it's a it's from a from a blunt maybe an extreme point of view to me not knowing about the cycles your monthly cycles is a bit a bit like somebody saying to me and um, so I I sleep at nighttime, right? Or is it during the day? And he'd say, no, we sleep during nighttime. It's dark. And that so, seems so obvious. And yet the cycles of our menstrual cycle are just as impactful on how we feel. So, you know, you telling somebody that they, ha- they would have to run a marathon in the middle of the night, we'd all say, okay, alarm bells, you're not going to be at your best. It's nighttime where our bodies aren't set out for that. And so carrying on, us carrying on to do our day-to-day activities at times of our menstrual cycle when we are not going to be at our prime should also trigger the same warnings to us. Like, okay, warning, I'm going to be in my luteal phase. I'm not going to be at my A game. Or amazing, I'm going to be in my follicular phase. I'm going to be you know, much more energetic. Um, and this yeah, key yeah. piece of information that should we tap into them can genuinely transform our lives. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that, actually, because I read a meta-analysis recently that was saying that in our luteal phase, this is specifically to do with exercise performance. Um, in our luteal phase, we should technically still have the capacity to perform the things that get interfered with most are is our psychology. So our intrinsic motivation, we're probably going to be more tired and feel sluggish, but theoretically the the capacity to perform is still there. Do you agree with that? Because I'm kind of like, I'm not sure to be perfectly honest with you from my own experiences and from my clients' experiences. I definitely think strength takes a, a bit of a hit. I, I mean, to be honest, how do you quantify capacity? Mm. The base level for capacity, ability, motivation 
mm. for for me getting up and running a mile would be amazing. I don't get any I don't do any exercise I'm your worst candidate um I, I lift my four-year-old all the time <laughs> that's my waiting um but you know what what do you count as as a baseline reference for it for, for others it would be doing a 10k run and so mm. in a even in a systematic review or meta-analysis it's very hard unless you're really qualifying what what are the parameters of exercise but irrespective of any of that subjectivity I think it's important to recognize that we have huge fluctuations in you know all of our hormones in particular estrogen at the end of our cycle it is pretty low and that's why of course it affects estrogen is the most potent powerful chemical on earth maybe testosterone is, is a is a match but um it dictates our cardiovascular health our neurocognitive health it affects our bone health and so it when it's even inextricably linked to our collagen and having that at such a low level of course you're going to be impacted uh, so much of our energy comes from not just physical energy but mental energy you know like our, our our mentality is one of the strongest motivators and I don't think you can separate them out and tell somebody you're just thinking about it differently there is a physiological change in the amount of hormones at the different at a different stage of our cycle so um I would say mm we should be much more mindful of like a little bit more restorative exercise. Um, yeah. 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 I agree. I agree with that. It's a tough one to quantify my personal stance on it. And I don't know if this is necessarily the right way to go about it, but if I just go in with the mindset of being open-minded, do my best given the circumstances, generally speaking, I can still get away with it and perform quite well, even if I do feel tired, but yeah. it doesn't feel as good. I'll give it that. It doesn't feel as good as it would, <laughs> you know, in a different stage you're of your life. Probably a little bit. So yeah, you're not going to get yeah. the same reward. Definitely. Um, okay. So the next thing I wanted to chat to you about was that as a population, we're becoming significantly less fertile. Why is that? Okay. So if you look at it from the different causes of female infertility, uh, there's ovulation this link links to ovulation problems uterine problems genetic chromosomal environmental um structural uh but one of the the most the most prevalent cause of female infertility is age-related so we are simply waiting far later in life so the average age of first child you, you know even if you go back 10 20 30 years it is rapidly getting older so you know there used to be a time in fact there was in the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, um, this like historical wall where it would say what to do with a geriatric mother. And that was anyone from 27 up. And when you think about our society back then, where women didn't get married, didn't have jobs, uh, or sorry, did get married, sorry, only got married, <laughs> had babies, didn't get jobs, didn't have careers. Um, we didn't have this capacity to travel to, you know, we didn't have any autonomy. We didn't even have pockets. So the idea that you wouldn't have gotten married and settled down and had a child by 27, you know, when people got married at 18, 19, 20, then that that actually was a, an older mum. Fast forward now, the average age of first child is, you know, 30, 31. In some places, it's much older. And so it, it stands to reason that when we are limited in our fertility, so we, <laughs> And when we ignore that, we do face the consequences. So 
the first element is to say that we're we are waiting much later to have children and an unpopular fact is that 86 percent of our egg reserve or our fertility is gone by age 30 and yet we have grown up thinking we can have it all do it all be it all and mother nature is not a feminist she's you know really reminding us of our limitations and in such a short historical time from an evolutionary perspective we've changed the goalposts entirely to where we think that getting married at 30 is actually kind of young mm, yeah whereas before absolutely. that would have seemed old um so there's a there's a psychology and a kind of a so- social element to the majority of infertility but that is compounded by the fact that the world we live in is a different place. Uh, the exposures that we are exposed to, whether it's environmental, through our cosmetics, through um, our water systems, through just the po- pollution that we're are are significantly worse. Um, and this does impact our fertility and our own lifestyle behaviors. We're not our mother's daughters. Our lifestyle behaviors are. We have much more exposure and tolerance and ex- expectation when it comes to social settings and alcohol, um, there's a readiness of availability of drugs. And these are, are from such a young age, you know, and we've seen this in our data at fertility when we look at, you know, 2,000, we're now 280,000 women and uh, 8% who, of women actively trying to get pregnant are taking drugs. And you just say, where's the education around that? It should be obvious. It should be obvious that like, maybe if you're going to give up some things, number one but it's, it's not there um so yeah there's I think there's a lot of reasons but namely that we're waiting much later to have babies yeah yeah I mean from experience I think it's really tricky in this generation particularly if you are a, a woman who wants children because it's quite difficult to find a man who is wanting oh. that this at this age so unfair that yeah. it even enters our thought I mean I know so many people in shitty relationships because they're just afraid yeah. if they leave that person they won't find anyone else on time to procreate and it's just such a disadvantage it puts us on such a, an annoying back foot um, mm-hmm. and that's why I think knowing what your fertility is puts you in a little bit more control to make decisions that are better for you than relying on the unknown and maybe assuming the worst. So it might yeah, be that absolutely. actually you're, you're totally fine and you should be bold enough to make the move. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. Or, or the, or, or the contrary for, you know, to, if you are, you know, a little bit later in your journey or of, um, of a stage where maybe it might be a bit of a risk, then, you know, take the control of freezing your eggs but I don't necessarily recommend that everyone freeze their eggs either I just I think that's it should come from a place of informed um planning rather than just like everyone's doing it so I should yeah okay so speaking personally right I'm 27 I'm single I want kids there's no one on the radar what should someone in my position do obviously take a test from fertility just throwing that one in there yeah, I, sometimes I say that and it sounds like I'm just selling it. But the whole reason <laughs> it was because I because that's the first step in any journey. Like even if you were to go and freeze your eggs, the first thing that they would do is check your fertility. So except they charge a lot more. And um, so doing that from the comfort of your home and knowing whether you are going to make that decision rather than feeling like if you're at a clinic and they test check your ovarian reserve, you're kind of locked in. A lot of the clinics will charge over 200 pounds just for one analyte. And we charge 149 for up to 10. So democratizing that was another element of fertility as well making sure that we were really evidence-based and scientific in our approach but also 
making it available to anyone. Unfortunately, in the UK, people will still challenge you and say that everything should be free because we are quite privileged to have a health system that that pays. But unfortunately, currently on the NHS, there are 570,000 women on a wait list just to see a gynecologist. So it's kind of at capacity. Um, but I would we our motto is like track your track your ovaries over your calories and I would just check in and know where you're at and from there you can make a decision I think to me giving blanket advice as to whether someone should freeze their eggs which is expensive and invasive um I, I think I would only give that advice in the knowing what your you know overall overall reproductive health was and that's why we test not just AMH which is a marker of ovarian reserve or egg reserve but we test your thyroid function all of the hormones relating to your menstrual cycle um your ovarian reserve if you have a suspected diagnosis of polycystic ovaries we'll test your androgens as well so to really give us a, a thorough picture of your reproductive health yeah amazing balance fertility yeah um Okay, so my next question. Sorry, I have so many questions. I feel like but most research, as we know, is done in men for obvious reasons. They are straightforward creatures. We are not. Um I, I, I think you meant to say basic there, didn't you? Basic, basic very basic. Creatures. <laughs> um true. Um I don't think people are always so aware of just how little research is actually done on women so how yeah how little research is actually done in women so it's no wonder we feel a bit lost sometimes would you be able to share some of the stats that you shared with us at the fertility event in London because I was shocked I was shocked at how little research is done on us um it is depressing um (laughs) It, it again it was it added fuel to the fire of building fertility because when we started we started as a clinical trial and in order to develop we wanted to develop predictive algorithms to say what is your likelihood of having any one of these very prevalent conditions one in three of us will have a gynecological pathology at some point and that sounds like you know something really drastic but it could be anything ranging from you know assist to menstrual dysfunction to amenorrhea so you have irregular periods so one in three of us will experience that that's uh, many billions of women all over the world um but less than two percent of um publicly funded money goes towards research in women's health so um it gives you an idea of just how little money goes into uh, women's health research in fact five times more funding has gone into erectile dysfunction than PMS, for example, which affects 90% of women. Um, so it really shows you the deprioritization of women's health, but also the just the disparity in allocation of resources towards women. And the fact that women weren't included in clinical trials till 1993 shows you that. Uh, and, and again, like those were there's different sides to that coin. People can say that you, we were ignored, but also when you think about applying a model, it's a that's based on the assumption that men and women are, are the same. And yet from a physiological endocrinological genetic for every other perspective we operate in very different ways so excluding women from clinical trials has meant that pretty much none of the drugs that are on the market have ever been thoroughly thoroughly tested on women almost every single drug on the market if you are prescribed as a woman it's going to be at a dose that is too high for you um and so that really frustrates me when i see the prevalence of different reproductive health conditions like you know one in ten have pcos one in ten have endometriosis and yet we don't have 
solutions for them. Um, you know, the, the global diabetes market is valued at higher than the women's health market currently, and that affects one in 16 people. And everyone knows what diabetes is. And yet, up, up until a few years ago, nobody knew what endometriosis was, and it affects one in 10. So it's, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's pretty frustrating uh, when we look at where we are now. And sometimes we explain fertility to people and they say, surely that already exists. And I'm like, you would, think, <laughs> you would think someone has done this, but they haven't. It should. Wow. I think I remember you saying something at the, the event to do with, um, was it research into painkillers? Saying, um, I think the last study was in like 1995 or something. <laughs> it was only one of them. So yeah. I can't remember precisely what it was, but I remember sitting there thinking, you're kidding me. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, a, I've become, maybe I've become a little bit inured to just how many of um, these just moments where I'm like, of course. Oh, yeah, course. you should expect it now. Yeah. It's just, yeah, I just don't think it even crosses your mind sometimes. You just assume that, oh, well, they must have tested it in us, but. And, 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 and the same is true of sports gynecology. So, you know, not testing individual performance indicators. And um, we did a systematic review as well, looking at um, how many of the studies and, you know, thousands of sports studies to included women um, or were solely dedicated to women. And we were like every single performance indicator for any of these, um, any of these studies were all carried out on men. Mm. All. I can so. understand why from from having been at uni in Loughborough, there were so many studies going on and it would all be, you have to be an 18 to 35 year old man. Like that's it. There was yeah. nothing. You couldn't do anything. And that's pretty much across the board for mm. for everything, actually. Anything to do with clinical <laughs> practice, pharmacology, the works. Mm. That's bad, isn't it? I know. Um, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on this as a fitness professional and again I'm aware that you might not know the answers because the studies aren't there um the impact of the pill on exercise performance because I've read so much research on this and yeah. everything more or less says there's no impact whatsoever but from my experience and from my clients experiences I just don't agree with that necessarily. Do you think we could be lacking information there? Do you think any of the research could be misleading? So I'm going to reverse the question and say, okay. when we ask questions about the pill, none of the studies are ever thoroughly categorized into hormonal, non-hormonal, uh, well, contraception, hormonal, non-hormonal, progesterone only, you know, um, long-acting reverse contraceptives, COIL, all of these different things which have different impacts on our hormones and are administered in different ways and individually we all have different reactions to them. So how can one quantify a binary answer of yes or no, it doesn't have an effect when intuitively each of us are so different. For some women, you could put them on, you know, a progesterone only pill and absolutely fine. For others, they really suffer. You know, we, we as as women are all quite different in our tolerances, in our individual hormone levels, and in our reaction to contraception, full stop. So unless you unless you were to do a study of half a million women with the same type of contraception on it for the same amount of time, 
you re at, like at the same age, you really can't say anything too valuable about that. Same when people ask, you know, does the, does the, the pill um, affect our fertility? Well, unless and until such time as we can do a study looking at the same type of contraception in women on over a, a significant amount of time, rule out any co like confounders of any pathologies, any other um, hormone imbalances, any other exposures, infections. We can't say that. It's so crazy to me that we have these, you know, blanket of statements that say something as profound as yes or no, it doesn't have an effect when it hasn't been thoroughly stratified per, per the individual, their exposures, the duration of the time they've been on that form of contraception, what activity they've been doing and the type of contraception they've been on. Sorry, we're just not there yet. And nobody's done that study. I've been looking. <laughs> have you that would be a very difficult study to do as well <laughs> well I think well I'm excited because we're going to be um we're developing that and it's going to be really exciting and I think these this is going to be this will be that one single source of truth for all things related to our reproductive health fertility menstrual cycles um and capturing all the information like that so I think uh, if there's anyone going to be able to answer these questions I hope that it will be us um because we have the, the forethought to answer them ask them actually in an intelligent way rather than yeah yeah absolutely that's amazing um okay so aside from fertility you're obviously behind such a big push for more understanding of our hormones any issues that we might face like pcos menopause i believe you have a test coming out for soon don't you we have a like a an overarching service so um so that we can assess people we can they can speak to a menopause specialist they can get prescription if they need it um testing if they need it so yeah um menopause support services coming yeah that's amazing I think so many people from my experiences as well have been in that position where we've gone to the doctors and you sort of feel like you're talking to a brick wall <laughs> and it's so difficult to get answers and as you quite rightly said on the fertility Instagram page like our healthcare system is essentially broken when it comes to this do you have any advice for anyone that's in that position where they feel like all they're doing is going to the doctors and just being turned away or told that they just need to get on with it um what can they do about it should they be coming to you it's why we built it um because this is not the first time I've heard this this is this I hear this every single day about symptom dismissal irregularity dismissal infertility dismissal even the way the system is set up in terms of referral you can't be referred until you're in a position where you're actually probably in a work you know you have to have been trying to conceive for 12 months or when it comes to talking about your symptoms symptoms and pain and irregularity when it comes to our menstrual cycle they're very insidious you know like how do you really again on a very personal level how do you differentiate between two individuals who have cramps one of them could be bent over on the floor another person could be sat doing a call in the same amount of pain um and it doesn't help when we have measurements for things like a spoonful of blood or, you know, or even measuring the number of sanitary products you get through um, is a little bit more helpful. But how, what's defined as normal to some is very abnormal to others. And what we tolerate as individuals sometimes can be a lot versus others who can't tolerate too much. And I think that is why we wanted to build something that enabled a very comprehensive triage of all of the different things. I will say that in an average appointment time, 
it with a GP is nine minutes. And so for from our perspective, if you want to take into account all of the things relating to someone's biometrics, lifestyle factors, menstrual patterns, symptoms, um, you know, intentions, you cannot cover, you can't, you physically can't ask enough of the relevant questions that are needed in order to answer those questions and give somebody the amount of time to answer them. And so why why we created Ertility was to create a digital interface that enabled someone to have the privacy, autonomy, time to answer some of those very personal questions, not least of which is very unnatural to answer a lot of those questions to a complete stranger, especially in time constraints when you're, you know, rushing to appointments, sitting down, you're sweating, you're awkward, and somebody asks you about how you bleed or when you last had sex or, you know, that doesn't come naturally to it probably comes naturally to me but even so I lock up when I see a certain person I, I won't necessarily feel so comfortable saying these answers so that's I think why we created this calculator essentially that takes into account all of those things and enables you to be educated um at the same time so everything we ask we we tell you why and sometimes people say to us god even you asking that question was a light bulb to me that it never occurred to me that that was important, but of course it is. You've you've asked you've asked it, and now it makes absolute sense why my diet or lifestyle or previous infections would matter to my overall reproductive health and fertility. Yeah, yeah, so so true. Um, I forgot to ask you this question earlier. I probably should have done, but a big topic that I wanted to ask you about was is sleep, yeah. and specifically the effects of our hormones on sleep. That's something that I really struggle with, like pre-period I'm literally like an insomniac lying <laughs> awake all night um can you explain why that happens and is there anything that anyone can do about it if they're experiencing those symptoms oh sleep is something that is so um we're all so different but when it comes to cyclical changes and cyclical rhythms of sleep it is very interlinked um it's hard not to underestimate it's hard to underestimate the importance of sleep hygiene which sounds like a strange uh, term but when it comes to our overall sleep and the routine i i think there is it's not just sleep that we should prepare for in our menstrual cycle it's everything else that comes with it it's the low mood it's the depending on your cycle right you could be it could be high mood high energy you know high capability high high um focus that we have when we're in that ovulatory phase and our estrogen is high um and preparing even so some people get insomnia around ovulation as well their their body temperature rises and so they're just a little bit hotter i think it's around it, multiple elements your physical space. So make allowing for the fact that you're going to be hotter wearing something lighter. It sounds so basic, but it's, it's quite relevant. Um, your uh, mental space. So what exposures you have, like preparing yourself. I think when it comes to knowing you're going to be, it's going to take you a lot longer. Your wind down period needs to be longer. You need to make, you know, resource allocation for the fact that, you know, maybe you shouldn't be, you shouldn't have your phone near you. It's about, even if you know, you're going to, especially if you know rather, you're not going to sleep that night, resting yourself from an earlier hour. Sure, you might not sleep, but at least your body is rested. At least your heart rate is going to be a little bit lower. And so your body is rested in the morning, even if you haven't slept so well. I think that there's a lot that we have to be mindful of when it comes to understanding our own sleep, but being strict around practices, around sleep behaviors as well. Yeah, that's so, so true. I'm going to 
not doom scrolling <laughs> no that's the worst thing you can do I'm so bad for that as well I say it to my clients all the time about sleep hygiene and yet I am that person on TikTok in my bed <laughs> scrolling it's it's it, what, what's hard about that is I think we're an enslaved generation of people uh who've been fed candy which mm-hmm. is like of course, this is something shiny that I can look at. Of course, I'm entertained. Every three seconds, I'm entertained by something new. It's either funny, emotional, it's, you know, witty, it's it's dramatic. And our minds are not, we are basic. And we're not basic. We're like, from, from when you look at our psychology, so much has changed in so little time that hasn't allowed evolution to catch up with the fact that ordinarily people had quite slow lives you saw things if something was going to happen you saw it happening you mentally prepared for it now we can literally view 18 different scenarios that make us happy sad worried anxious jealous in the space of five minutes that is not good for anyone and yet it's become not even a normal facet of our lives it's it's our lives are underpinned by that nobody I know can have a conversation without taking their phone out and showing somebody something. Did I show you that video? Did I send you this video? It's it's almost taken over our ability to have normal conversations. And so, of course, it's going to take over our ability to just function. And that type of extremes, extreme neurological change prior to bed is definitely going to affect the way we sleep, the way we think, the way we process. Um, we don't get enough of the the R is like we don't have the regret time the you know remember time the reconsider time because ordinarily even when you have an argument with somebody typically before you would go and you'd be stew and you'd reconsider and then you'd regret something and then you'd remember something else um but now what do we do in our downtime any downtime we have argument or not scroll (laughs) so we don't allow our brains to even develop and consume, digest, and process something. We just replace it with something else. And so that all builds up. Yeah, yeah. So that's the biggest thing, sleep hygiene, even if it is hormonal influence that is stopping yeah. you sleep. Yeah, yeah. Prepare, prepare for it and rest your rest your body in other ways. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to use my, my, I'm sure she won't mind. I'm going to use my mom as an example here right now because... She um really, really struggled when she was going through the menopause with her sleep, like to the point where she probably had about two years of not sleeping properly. She thought she was going to die. She, she said that to me, but she was going to the doctors and they were saying, oh, there must be something stressful in your life that is making you worried and you're not sleeping because of that. And she was like, the only thing that's worrying me is I can't sleep. And she was going insane. Um again like something like sleep hygiene for her would have done probably very little in the grand scheme of things absolutely in that case she should have just had her hormones checked and and fully assessed for exactly that were the the collateral symptoms she was probably getting but it's only really in the last couple of years that people have woken up to Mm. awareness around uh perimenopause and menopause um so i i i feel anger for the generation of women who were completely abandoned and, and we we still are. We're still like in the context in the grand scheme. I think I think we're an, an an engaged, informed generation, but we're a very small circle of people who are who are educated and, and flying the flag. Um, but so many stories that I hear um 
for my own mum even just make me sad um that mm. there was no education no information that could be given to them and they were just left in the dark and told it's probably just you when this is something that we what 100 of women will go through absolutely i'm very glad that you are fighting the good fight for us <laughs> like we need we need this brand this is why i'm so so behind it because the it's just a revolution literally <laughs> Yeah, that's why so, we call it the mother of all movements. It's like for our mothers, for the would-be mothers, for the people who can't, who are trying to be mothers. Um, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So if someone is in this position and they're looking to get a fertility test, like what's the process of that? How does it work for them or what do they need to do? It's really simple. Um, we created it because we live in a generation where, you know, we order anything and it arrives the next day. Um, so you head to the fertility website, which is fertilityhealth.com. Um, the, you'll start the assessment. This, the assessment should take around five minutes um, and takes into account like all your menstrual factors, your symptoms, your lifestyle factors. It's quite a detailed uh, health assessment. It is also, it depends. There's a different versions of health assessments depending on your intention for being there. So whether it's, we ask you at the beginning, are you actively trying to conceive? Are you planning for the future? Are you experiencing symptoms are you just curious uh are you do you think you're perimenopausal or are you menopausal and i think that first question is very important for us or at least you know not just even from the different questions we ask you as a result but from a language point of view you know if your intentions are very different we want to be able to cater to that and speak in a language that you know resonates with you if you're not trying actively trying to conceive but you're curious we're not going to start talking about preconception advice it's just about giving you the advice that's relevant to you at your at your current stage and once you've done that health assessment, we will send you uh, the blood test. Um, it has to be done on the third day of your period, um, unless you're on hormonal contraception, in which case you can do any day. And obviously we're limited then in the number of uh, analytes we can test you because we can't test your menstrual cycle hormones because you're already on exogenous hormones. So it's a pain, a finger prick blood test. You fill a vial, send it off and you'll get your results within eight days. And that to me is the, the key part of that is that they're not just blood results. They're, it's We've taken into account all the millions of variables of answers you've given us in the health assessment, plus your hormone results. And we it, the idea is that you click in and it's like, welcome to your virtual clinic. And we talk you through your um, ovarian reserve and fertility, your um, menstrual cycle health, your thyroid health, and any additional parameters should you trigger them so that the test for everyone is tailored depending on the combinations of, of symptoms that they have and at present we can screen for 18 of the most common um conditions related to reproductive health so it's a very powerful triage and screening tool that we've spent many years developing to make sure that we get people to a diagnosis much sooner yeah and then you obviously have all the connections off the back of that should someone need it as well right so if if we have diagnosed you with anything uh, that you didn't tell us about before, we will give you a complimentary care call to let you know, like just to let you know, we found some results. There's help, here's information, whether somebody got an, a diagnosis of PCOS. I had somebody recently come up to me at an event and she hugged me. She said, I, I did a fertility test and I got a, a diagnosis of PCOS. And I was so happy because I spent five years going to doctors and I was there. It was kind of strange. I was so happy, but it was strange that somebody would be happy to get a diagnosis. But like you say, so many people are banging their head against a wall, just wanted to be heard, tested and diagnosed because they know they're not going crazy. They just want to know what it is that is making them feel this way so um 
We have additional clinical services. Should you need a scan, we can refer you for an ultrasound scan. Should you need to speak to a gynecologist, we have a full team of amazing gynecologists, uh, fertility advisors, nutritional support, uh, counsellors, because sometimes you might get news that would be, you know, a little bit uh, not what you wanted to hear. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, well, I really appreciate your time today. I'm going to tag everything to do with you and Hertility Health in the um, caption below. So if anyone wants to go and find it, which I believe you should, no matter where you're at in the in this whole scenario, go and get a test, figure out where you're at right now, whatever you might need. Um, and honestly, Helen, keep fighting the good fight. I appreciate it so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. Great Thank to have you. Chat.